TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who would not want to be a part of a mafia hit, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we have a shorter schedule as some shows have already reached their mid-season finales. So this week, we have our in-depth discussions on Once Upon a Time with Andy and Dan, then Dan and I for Almost Human, the psych music and the person of interest sort of bridge episode that will connect the mid-season premiere with the mid-season finale we had a few weeks back. And then our sitcom section, including How I Met Your Mother. Then we're going to dive right into a short rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland and Mob City. Nice, good stuff. Before we get into all of that, we've got our favorite section, hosted by a guy who wants to be a Jamaican police inspector. News with Nico. Ernie Hudson up for a key role in the CW's Flash series. Comic Book Movies reports that Ernie Hudson, best known as Ghostbusters Winston Zedmore, is up for a role on CW's Arrow spinoff series about The Flash. During an interview on the Ghostbusters-themed podcast, Cross the Streams, that's a great name. (laughs) Yes, it is. Hudson revealed that he's preparing to meet with The Flash show creators next week. When asked about the role he was up for, the actor replied, his adoptive dad, or the dad of, and cut himself off, going on to add, Barry Allen's dad has a problem. A casting call posted by Bloodhaven Banter reveals that the role in question is almost certainly that of Detective West, described as an African-American in his late 40s, early 50s. This character will be the father of Iris, Barry's love interest, who will be cast as an African-American between 22 and 28. For more information and the casting call descriptions of these characters, both Detective West and Iris West, click on the link in our ACC feed. Okay, now this is what I'm going to say about this. I like the cast of Ernie Hudson. It's kind of like what they did when they brought in Ving Rhames on that Aquaman pilot to bring that kind of star presence. Okay, and, and again, Ernie Hudson can be very good as a mentor figure character. Sure. So I'm excited about this. The problem here is if he is Detective West, that really throws off one of my all-time favorite characters in comics, which is Wally West. Because that would mean Wally West would look nothing like Wally West if he came into this show. So I have a hard time it dramatically changing one of my favorite characters from the Flash comic books on the Flash I've grown up on. So TV show casting, I get it, I see it. Comic book-wise, I'm a little shaky on this. But again, maybe that's not the case. Well, it could be that Wally ends up being another adopted son of Detective West, so he could be different as well, or it's just going to be a African-American version, but everything will be same with the character, all his, where he comes from, and everything like that could still be the same. It's just crossing a racial you know, and, and yeah. being a different race. I don't have a problem with it either way. I, I, I see what everybody says, you know, like there is some talk about 
about whether you cast against race. Uh, and right. sometimes it works, sometimes it becomes a distraction for the character, and that's the whole reason that they do it. I don't think this is the reason they're doing it. I think it is to... I don't know what the reason they're doing it is, actually, but I don't have a problem with it either way. I think it's going to be, right. it could be very good for the show, and it could bring some diversity to a very all-white cast. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's the going for it, at least the going for quality mm-hmm. with that. But I feel like once you've got a character established, because one way, changing it up throws me off. I can see it argued both ways, and both sides have merit, yeah. and I, I, I don't have an opinion, really. I'm not racist here at all. Just no, I understand that. I understand understand exactly what you're saying and i and i understand that because you have a, an image in your mind of what w- wally west looks like you have a image of what cyborg looks like as well right and if you change that up it would be distracting right. so it there is some merit to casting exactly like the comic books and sometimes they they pick actors that look almost exactly like they're drawn on the page right and that 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 always works very well I don't see this as detraction from the show, and I don't think you're saying that at all. I think you right. said it might be a distraction, and that's a valid point. But I, I would buy your adop- uh, adopted theory, too. Yeah, that's another thing that's absolutely possible, because it, it would make sense similar to, you know, sort of the whole Barry Allen story right. as well, you know? So it gives Barry Allen and Wally West a con- common connection there as well if you go that route. You don't have to, but it, it's a way to go. Great. It's interesting. Well, at Gurney Hudson's presence is going to add a lot to this show. Yeah, I do absolutely. Like that. Sherlock boss Stephen Moffat on pending season four renewal. Of course it will happen. But he fights the time. <laughs> exactly. A fourth season of Sherlock is as inevitable as the iconic detectives returned from the dead in season three. Series co-creator Stephen Moffat assures TV line that the show will go on and on and possibly on some more. Quote, I don't suppose there's an official commission for it yet, but of course it will happen. He says of season four, it's inordinarily successful. Assuming everyone was willing to turn up for it, which everyone apparently is, then we'll carry on making them. Benedict Cumberbatch seems more than eager to turn up for a fourth season and beyond. Last year, the crazy busy actor told TV Line, there's no reason for us to stop if it's still being adored and we still enjoy doing it. We only do three episodes at a time, so I think the normal fear of overstretching the mark and just doing too many doesn't apply. It's good to leave people wanting more. Now, I'd love to see Sherlock continue on for many more seasons because I love the character, but what I think would be fun to see is Sherlock grow older and see the character age into his 40s and 50s and see the Sherlock and Watson relationship progress and evolve into the future. That would be fun to see and something completely new for the character in this series. It would be fun to see that happen. And it seems like a Moffat thing to do. Absolutely. And I think that's what would make that so much fun to see is Moffat aging the character. And that could be a lot of fun. Exactly. Homeland finale draws biggest crowd ever. A lot of people watched the Homeland finale that we will review in the rundown section this week. Season 3 of the Showtime spy drama concluded last Sunday night before an audience of 2.4 million total viewers in its first airing and totaled 2.9 million for the night, both marking all-time highs. Homeland's previous bests were set by Season 2, Episode 11, with 2.36 million viewers and the Season 2 finale, which amassed 2.7 million across the entire night. Year over year, Homeland is up 18% versus Season 2. For HBO, these numbers are good, but they're not Game of Thrones good. Still, it was it was a pretty good, successful good season. Move. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
CBS announces How I Met Your Mother finale air date. The CBS comedy is finishing up early. CBS on Thursday announced that the long-running comedy will wrap its 24-episode final season with an hour-long episode on Monday, March 31st. The good news about the show's winter exit? Eh, save for two Olympic-fueled repeats, the show will air all originals from January 13th to Very March nice. 31st end. Also, airing immediately after How I Met Your Mother's Swan Song at 9-8 Central will be the new James Vanderbeek comedy Friends with Better Lives. It will then shift to its regular 8.30 slot on April 7th. I like this schedule, actually, because it means, except during the Olympics, when I will not really want to watch regular TV anyway, we will get all new How I Met Your Mother with no repeats. That is the best part of this news for this show. But March 31st is going to be a sad day, KTA listeners. <laughs> yeah, it's going to come way too soon, but at the same time, I'm glad it's a straight shot. That's going to make it so there's no letdown during that time, no time when you're like, oh, man, there should have been How I Met Your Mother on this week, or, you know, oh, they, they're doing repeats again. No, we're going to hit it hit it hard and hit it fast. Yeah, well, it's going to be an emotional episode. On it. That's all I'm going to say. Frank Darabont sues AMC over The Walking Dead. Does he need the money? Frank Darabont is suing AMC over profit sharing for The Walking Dead. The smash hit series he created for the network reveals The Hollywood Reporter. The suit filed this week in New York State Supreme Court alleges breach of contract on the part of AMC to the tune of tens of millions of dollars in unpaid fees. The complaint offers an in-depth look at Darabont's side of the dispute, which has been brewing since at least 2011 when he was fired. Fans of the series now now the highest rated scripted drama on television, have known of the battle between Darabont and AMC since AMC replaced Darabont as producer and showrunner for the unspecified reasons in 2011. It was long been theorized that Darabont was let go due to a dispute over the show's budget. According to the lawsuit, however, Darabont believes his firing was a direct result of a scheme to avoid paying him his contractual percentage of the show's profits. The suit describes the events that led up to The Walking Dead getting the green light, including Darabont's stalled talks with NBC and HBO before it ultimately landed at AMC. According to a deal memorandum between Darabont and AMC, AMC was to have the series produced by an unaffiliated studio, for example, Lionsgate or Warner Brothers Television. AMC would distribute the show via its cable TV channel. In such situations, the distributor pays the producer a negotiated fee, which is how the producer makes its money. Darabont's deal gave him up to 12.5% of the unaffiliated producer's profits, minus some industry standard deductions. Now, according to the complaint, AMC did not ultimately use an independent producer. Rather, after seeing Darabont's script for the first season, AMC decided to produce the show in-house through one of its subsidiaries. Darabont and his co-plaintiff, creative artist agency, CAA, speculate that AMC may have done this to avoid the situation they were in with Mad Men, a very successful show that was produced by Lionsgate and therefore sent much of its hefty profits outside the company. AMC supposedly promised that Darabont's fees would nevertheless remain at the level he would have reasonably expected had the production duties been handled by an unaffiliated entity. This is where problems crop up. The plaintiffs claim AMC placed a perpetual artificially low cap on the fees it would pay its production arm of the episodes of Walking Dead. This cap would virtually guarantee that the series balance sheet would always show a deficit no matter how successful it was and no matter how long it ran. That would result in Darabont getting 
nothing. The complaint also describes Darabont's firing shortly before season two aired and less than 48 hours after appearing at Comic-Con to promote the show in 2011. I know, that was crazy. (laughs) It says that Darabont asked for but was never given an explanation for his termination and replacement by Glenn Mazzara, who he hired to be his second in command. He alleges that he was dismissed so AMC would not have to fulfill its obligation to pay him for season two or negotiate with him for season three. For the full story, because I didn't even cover half of it, check out the article over at IGN by clicking on the link in our ACC feed. I just hope this dispute does not affect or kill one of my favorite shows on television, because that would be a very sad day. For a lot of people. Yeah. Wow, I, wow, what a mess. Yeah, you you can see why Frank Darabont is angry and yeah. why he feels like he got the short end of the stick. And from the complaint he's filed against AMC, it really makes a good case for why he's in the right. Now, I'm sure AMC will counter with their own version of what happened and why things happened, but I, I have a feeling this is going to be settled out of court. Okay, uh, TNT, you need to play nice with Frank Darabont, I guess. Yeah. On Bob City, because he'll come to get you. Yeah, just pay him what he's due and everything will, yeah. everything will work out. I think AMC can afford it now after the success of Walking Dead. Let's hope so, right? Yeah. <laughs> A new girl scoop. Linda Cardellini cast as Jess's sis. New Girl has tapped Linda Cardellini to join season three cast in a recurring role of Abby, Jess, played by Zoe Deschanel, her wild child sister. Cardellini, whose TV credits include Freaks and Geeks, ER, and most recently Mad Men, will first turn up in February. New Girl resumes its third season on Tuesday, January 7th, and I think this should be an interesting addition to the show, and it's probably pretty good casting choice. Okay, and they're going to have her in addition to Coach? I, I believe so. They've said earlier on that Coach would be a member for the remainder of of the season, but not necessarily into the next season. They hadn't made that decision yet. And this is going to be a season recurring or a series recurring for the remainder of season three. Can I hope that they leave the door open for just to have a third sister as well? <laughs> just just to throw that in there. It would, it would be fun to see Emily come on the show. And I don't think she needs to be a sister. I think she needs to be like a wacky cousin okay. like they did on Bones. Yes. That would be fun. Because I think it would be fun to see her in a comedy setting, because it would just be so out of place. That would be hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. And with that, we're going to bring Andy in to talk about a heartbreaking, but I thought very well done, episode of Once Upon a Time that basically is going to change everything up and say that we're not in Kansas anymore. So let's talk about the Once Upon a Time episode going home. In the winter finale episode, the race is on to stop Pam from in, from enacting another curse on the residents of Storybrooke, which would kill every living soul in town. Wow, that is a short description. So, I was speechless after this episode. It's... Yeah. Like, that's the best way to describe this episode. It's speechless. Like, there's... This could have been... Like, this could have been the series finale, to be honest. Yeah, but I think it would have ticked people off throughout how open it, it, it was. Yeah, it, it, of course <laughs> it would have ticked people off, uh, uh, I'm just saying that it's at when they start to get yeah. let's get let's get to a specific point because you know because you know I don't think we need to focus too much on that um, they they switch bodies back and you know kind of fairly Pan and Henry yeah easily which we all knew they were gonna do that anyway yeah. and um, the the blue fairy comes back they kill they take the shot kill the, they destroy the shadow and um, Tinkerbell gets her powers back 
And and she's still kind of annoying when she talks, but still, whatever, whatever. And the reason why we're speeding it up is because we don't want to focus. We want to get to the most important stuff of the episode. And yeah. um, Rumble and, and Peter Pan's battle was kind of epic. Seeing him being trapped again, yeah. seeing Rumble being trapped again was kind of cool. And uh, yeah, well, Rumple. The one part with Rumple that was kind of crazy was called the whole thing with the cufflink that took his powers away. Not just that, he made like he couldn't walk. Pro- like I think he became yeah. like the Rumble that we saw in, uh, like that we saw before he became the Dark One. Yeah, and you could felt feel him returning that character. I mean, they really did a good job with the the kid who plays Ann Pan's Ann. Wow, Pan's acting ability just to show what he reduced Rumple back to. Right, that, and you really felt he was in peril. Rumple was. That kid deserves an Emmy. Yeah, so he was very good as Pan. Very good. And um, here's the thing: what, what, what? We Rumble, we see Rumble sacrifice himself to, you know, to get rid of Pan once and for all. But guys, yeah. here's the thing, and this is a golden rule, especially for comic book shows: nobody equals not ne- not necessarily dead. That's right, dearie. No, you're not doing it right. I had to throw that in there because you know. I mean, it's, we might not hear him say that anymore if he gets gone, but he could be back. But it's going to take a while, I think, till he comes back. But, you know, you said it wrong because it needs to be like, Derry! I didn't want to disturb you, Andy. That's why I said it in a normal voice. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. <laughs> and, uh, no, but I... If this was his final episode, if Rumpelstilz is, in fact, really dead, then I think we, what all we need to do is... Give him a, a big round of applause and yes, uh, Robert Carlyle was great on the show because that was a that could have, that's actually a satisfying conclusion to his character. Oh he, yeah, his final act in life was not as a dark one; it was as Rumpelstiltskin, and it was to save his son. Uh, everybody, basically, Every, yeah. But if there are a lot of questions now, like okay, so who's going to become the new dark one? Like, where, like how was was that even possible yeah. with him staggering with the, with the dagger and stuff? Because he basically killed himself. Uh, well, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the battle to get the dagger. Maybe that's what the next half of the season's about. That the villain of next season is after the dagger. I don't want to say what the villain is because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. If they yeah. don't want to know. Yeah, I will just say that to, to you guys that if you want to know what they're doing with the next next second half of the season, just go to YouTube and look at the trailer. Yeah. It's effing amazing. And it's going to make so much sense. But if if this was, Rumble's, if this was Robert last episode... All we can do is give him a big round of applause and just say that he has, you know, he, he hasn't been, and since his arc has been phenomenal throughout this whole series. And that last line he had was huge. That was. I'm the villain. I don't get a happy ending. Well, Rumble, you know what? To me, you were not a villain in that moment. Well, that's going to be a thing that haunts Regina going forward. Yeah, because now she, like, you know, she, now she's the, technically the only villain left. And, like, she, yep. she has one resource. She has one less resource. Right. But I think her actions for Henry may give her a chance. Yeah, and let's talk about Regina now for a second. She was great in this episode, by the way. Oh my god, three weeks in a row she's been amazing. But I'm going to just say this. This character has a, was able to finally redeem herself after two seasons. She's, oh yeah. She's a character capable of being redeemed. Now, whether, whether, whether or not she keeps that, 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 that redeeming side of her remains to be seen because she could still become the villain again but like now we know that she, this is the character that can actually read you know try to pay for her sins but what happens to her after she goes through a year without henry that's well, gonna be the question yeah but that was oh, so many it good- was heartbreaking what she had to do I, I she had to give up her son to yeah. give him a chance got being happy absolutely and I, I have been a bit harsh on 
poor Miss Jennifer Morrison uh, for the past two weeks. But that scene where she, you know, has to basically say, say goodbye to everyone except for her son. That like that was a fantastic scene. Like just see, you know, her eyes, her reaction, everything. That was. That well, was... And the scene she had shared with Regina was pretty powerful. I mean, she felt the you know the responsibility of taking care of this woman's son being put upon her. Yeah, and the fact that now that she doesn't even remember that uh, makes yeah. it more sad. And, and the other thing is, I think next half of the season is going to be Jennifer Morrison's shy, come time to shine. Because she's not going to have those other characters with her. So There's going to be a lot of scenes where it's just her and Ch- Henry. And I, I know. think she's really going to... I guess. I don't really like him there. Well, well, I want to see her and Henry trying to get back to Storybrooke. But I guess they have to have a third wheel for comic relief or whatever it is. He's not comic relief. He's just the the, the wisecracker. Sex appeal. No, he's not. No, I, you know, actually, and this comes from, and this is coming from me, but he, no, no. I think for other people, though, Andy. No, no, they're wrong. No, I'm just kidding with you guys. I'm, I'm intrigued how Hook was able to get back. Yes, that, that is a question. I think it was easy for him to get there. I think getting back is going to be a trick. Okay, just so everyone knows, so they're up to speed, what we're talking about here. The curse uh, got changed up by Regina, but the price of that curse that Pam was going to cast basically set the ball back to Storybrooke, got Emma and Henry ahead uh, to the regular world without their memories of the past three seasons. And then Hook shows up at the end saying they need to go back. But of course, they don't know who he is. <laughs> we, <laughs> I kind of had this... Uh... This Doc Brown and Marty McFly moment from the end of Back to the Future when he shows like there, yeah. there, there is something wrong with your kids in the future. <laughs> and what? And what? You've got to come back with me. Back to where? Back to the future. Yeah, like <laughs> what would have? What would have killed me in that moment would have been if they got on uh, the Jolly Roger and uh, he'd been able to get him on the Jolly Roger and be like, "Where we're going, we don't need roads. We need clouds." And <laughs> And we just see the ship starting. Yeah, okay, yeah. Now Andy is going into total tangents. I'm sorry, but it's just like that's it what felt like that. Yes. Yeah, like we go. Wait, Emma, we have to go back. Back where? Back well, why to... hook of all people? That's my question. Well, Jolly Roger, I think that's the secret. <laughs> that's probably true. And maybe this will be able to give us a better side of uh, Hook. Like he's been good this season. But I think I want a better yes. side of him because like I'm. <sighs> Oh my! Oh my effing god! He's supposed to be evil. Yeah. And, I, and like he's Peter Pan is dead in this universe now, guys. Right. I like, think. I think the big thing is, I do think that Cook has respect for Charming though, and some of these other people. You know, he and Charming kind of have a, a bro code going on here. So I think if he asked him to go back, he would go back. Unless, well, and the other thing is, Cook could still be pining after Emma and wants her back. Well. He tried to kiss her. Sure, exactly. That didn't work. Uh, yeah, that did not work <laughs> at all. Uh, well, you know, like you said, it was worth a shot. And uh, it's just that here's the thing: we don't have. They have basically set themselves up to be able to do bigger things now that now that Storybrooke is gone. Because here's the thing: at some point, these characters are going to get reunited, and at some point, right. they're, they're just going to when the show does, and hopefully not for you know, hopefully not anytime soon. There's going to be this choice that Emma's going to have. And maybe some other characters are going to have the same choice as well. Either they will live wherever they want. Wherever they want in um, 
in uh, in our world, or they will go back to the Enchanted Forest. Well, and the other thing is, I think when we had Storybrooke, especially at the second half of season two, the show seemed to fly off in a lot of different directions. Yeah, multiple stories. It didn't know where to go. Okay, so now I think they're they're just settling on doing different quests. Now, okay, with Neverland, it worked exactly, and like. They they need to send her sh- like they need to send her every uh, uh, half of season of their season with eleven episodes around one storyline. I think yeah. that's the strength of the show. It's like Torchwood basically like, in their latest season. But yeah. I I I had a conversation with uh, with Wu the other uh, yesterday, and he made a good point asking me like what happened to the darlings during this curse because they, you know when you know, when they when they went back like because they are not they are not you know they are real characters they are not. So I was just assuming they stayed where they were. Well, here's the thing because Peter Pan is dead and he's yeah. the one that kept them alive. Yeah. I think Wendy is alone now. That's interesting. And she's wandering around off in that. Because I, I thought if, if things would have stayed at Storybrooke, that maybe they would have established a friendship between her and Henry or something like that. Oh, like a girlfriend, boyfriend? Not, not really that, but like give Henry like a group of friends, you know? Kind of Wendy's in the group and he gets him and maybe give him a kind of a sidekick. No. No, no maybe not. I'm, no, no. I, I, I do want to see the story follow Henry a, a little bit more. Kind of have, have him do. Some heroic things as well. Well, he said last year that he's done reading. He wants to be a hero now. He's done reading about them. Right, exactly. And I want to see him do some of that stuff. Okay, and, and be kind of like that hero that the traditional Peter Pan is. Yeah, and like because, you know, he's growing up. And, you know, they need to start doing different things with, yeah. his, with his character. Because, you know, he can no longer be the one that guides the savior in the same in the same capacity, right? Because that book is also gone. Well, and the actor is going to get older, so you need to do things to fit his him maturing as well. Because his voice has already gotten deeper, and he's growing. And like, yeah, you know, we at this point we don't even know how long the show is going to last because it that night, like, it started to feel like a point where it was actually like a series finale. Like, it was like, yeah, it feels like that we're about to end the show. If they, if they would if they would have ended the show with this episode. They wouldn't have had that extra scene with Hook. Exactly, like, you know, know like if 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 the, if if the episode had ended, if the series finale had been concluded with Emma and Henry eating breakfast and not remembering a single thing, that could have been the series finale. Would it be the yeah, good yeah. one? No, because that feels like it would have been a, lot, a huge disrespect to several characters. Then, because I think that we need, I, I think we need more happy right. endings than just that. Go on, that's the trick with a, a episode like this. You know, once upon a time, was kind of on the fence. I think they gave them a make it or break it first half of this season, and they accomplished what they needed to. And they were given a um, you know a continuation. But I think they had this season set up to just in case we've got a way to end it. It might not be a great way, but it's there. And it's like after this art is coming up, but in the second half of the season, like okay, it, 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 just Im- because I don't want to get into spoilers. Like, can you imagine the show going for a fourth season? It's going to be close. I, I could see like a shortened fourth season, kind of shortened fifth season. Yeah, that's what I think too as well. Because I, you know, I would love to see them to get past, you know, at least up to 100 episodes. Yeah. Well, I, I think this show would do well in syndication. Yeah. I think it's enough to track, attract audience, especially like, you know, teenage, girl, teenage girls, maybe girls in middle school, a little, little younger than that. Yeah, are you try- are you telling this the our view- listeners that uh, this is more of a female show? No, I just see a lot of well, I just see a lot of people that are very invested in Disney films. Got people that are nostalgic. 
for Disney films wanting to watch the show. Well, there are there are a lot of dudes who enjoy the show as well. Right, and I think that's because we grew up watching these Disney films. We enjoy them, and, and I think a lot of people appreciate the hope that come with fairy tales, like this episode talked about. They did a very good job of covering. Yes. I thought that scene with Mary Margaret and Henry over the um, book was great, and a great way to sum that up. Nice that we finally get to see how we got the book. Now the question that arises this now is that how the heck did, did she get the book? And that might be a question you know, left for next half of the season. Because I think the book's going to come back again. Well, like, what, what, else, what, what else could, what other play could it, role could it have at this point? To make them believe that it still exists. That's what ends up Hook, helps Hook to prove to them that it exists. I think one question that they need to get, need to answer to, at some point is, who wrote it? Who knows about all these stories? That's, that's another good question. J.K. Rowling. That seems like a big final season question to be answered. J.K. Rowling. Right. Stephen King. Right. Walt Disney. Right. Dan DiDio. No, no, no. No, I don't think this is a a DC comic, sorry. Okay. Um, But with that, I think we're running low on time. Stan Lee. This isn't a comic book, Andy. It's fairy tales. It's okay. Over by the Grimm people. And Hans Christian Andersen. What the heck is Grimm? No, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna Mother's say uh, I know that, but it was a joke. Oh my god! I will <laughs> give this episode this minute a five out of five because it did what it was supposed to. It wrapped up the Neverland story arc, and um, it wrapped up in the Neverland story arc. It gave us a good set setup for what is what is yet to come. And, yeah, it ties us to coming back. Yeah, it did. It did tease us enough what it's gonna have in the second half of the season. They did it with a trailer though. And, uh, yeah, guys, you just need to watch that trailer and tune in on Mars 9, 2014 to watch that show. And, yeah, right. so, yeah, my, Dan and I, we won't be back for a Once Upon a Time section until oh, wow. Mars. And uh, that, the same thing goes for me and Nico's uh, Wonderland section. We won't be back until Mars 6 when the show comes back to talk about it. So get ready for that day. It's going to be exciting. All right. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. Looking forward to resuming our talks, I think, uh, come this March when Once Upon a Time returns. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about a Fox show that still seems to be taking the world by storm. Got a very intense but fun episode. So let's talk about Almost Human and the episode Arrhythmia. Kenick Sindorian investigated a suspected homicide at a hospital of a man who knew his exact time of death before he experienced his fatal cardiac arrest, connected to a black market for biomedical organs, which can be remotely shut down and resold. Meanwhile, Dorian connects with one of his decommissioned brothers. Yeah, this week's almost human. It started out kind of interesting. Guys, Kenick Sindorian arrived, got the crime scene to find another DRN model working as a janitor. Kind of figured that, you know, there were other versions of Dorian out there, but I didn't expect them to all look like Michael Ely. So it's, that was kind of too similar to Terminator. But I guess that's all right. Nico, what'd you make of all this? I too thought that since they gave these DRN models synthetic souls, that there would be more variations of the model and would be both female and male versions as well. Now, that being said, it would not make sense to create a completely new face for each DRN because that would be cost prohibitive. And rather, they would only assign one DRN with each face to right. each precinct or something similar to that to keep the illusion alive that they were completely unique. Kind of make them separate from the other model, the MX models. Yeah, well, even the MX model has three variations. That's true. 
but we've never seen a female MX or a female Dorian either. Right, and that's the thing. I I would have thought that they would have had you know would have had female ones as well. I personally think a female Dorian's coming. Okay. I think that's the next step in this. They seem to be easing us along. Okay. And, uh, did you like Dorian's reasoning behind bringing the other Dorian, or we'll call him Dorian 2, for a ride-along as an opportunity for him to give someone a second chance? Sure. Since the DRNs are more human than their MX versions, it would make sense that Dorian would have feelings toward another DRN and want to be the one who helps bring this new DRN back to being a cop, much like Kenix was for Dorian. As Dorian said, these DRNs were designed to be cops, and that is what they want to be. An MX would not care or even realize that it was not doing its intended job if it were a janitor. But the DRNs have feelings and a synthetic soul, and it hurt Orion to see one of his kind reduced to a mechanic for the hospital. So it makes perfect sense that he wanted to help this new DRN, and it also made perfect sense that it backfired in his face. Yes. <laughs> but I liked, I, I liked the outcome of this and thought it was a growing moment for Dorian's character as well as the Dorian and John partnership. So in that sense, I thought it was a great story for that. Yeah, and I really like kind of seeing, it's kind of a new idea to see robots make mistakes and kind of screw up. Yeah. And that stuff with, oh my gosh, Dorian 2 causing chaos in the streets was quite hilarious trying to arrest that perpetrator. That was just great stuff. I love how Kenix got so frustrated. And just all of it with Dorian trying to take control of the car. And Captain Maladano getting upset. I mean, oh my gosh, this is just great comical stuff as Dorian tried to help this guy out. But also it was kind of sad, too, for Dorian 2.0 to not be a cop anymore. It really felt like a, a real person who kind of experienced, you know, some kind of trauma with being a cop and told they couldn't do the job anymore. Yeah. But ultimately from this, I really think we got to see Michael Ely show us that he's got to be having a blast playing this role as a synthetic. Almost as if he's like, you know, on Doctor Who or a part of the Star Wars franchise. Uh, do you agree with this sentiment, Nico? Yeah, and I totally do. I love the chaos that occurred when the pseudo-Dorian tried to make an arrest and ended up killing or destroying, however you look at it, an MX with a UAV drone. I think Michael Ely has to be loving the Dorian character because it just seems like he is shining as Dorian and you can almost feel his enthusiasm coming through the character on screen every time he shows up. This has got to be one of my favorite things I've ever seen him in. So I hope he is enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying watching him do it because this is sort of the role he was born to play. It takes his comedy chops and his real serious dramatic ability and combines them into a perfect character. And, and really, we have seen Michael Ely all across the board. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's done dramatic roles, played villains, you name it. It's finally, it's good that he's got a role that's his own instead of just randomly being placed as a supporting actor. Yeah, it's funny because when he played, the last thing I saw him in was Common Law, where he played the goof-off kind of break the rules sort of almost the Kenix character right. of the partnership and then his partner played the straight laced everything by the book sort of guy and so it's funny that there he's sort of switched roles in becoming the Dorian character even though the Dorian character technically is the robot and the one that's supposed to be straight laced by the book everything you know right. like that and so it's real fun to see him play around with that quite it's a big contrast to where I saw him was in the last outdoor Underworld movie, where he was a more of a serious cop in that film. Yep. And so it's, it's interesting to see him do all the facets of the police detective character. 
And on top of all of this, reading the other Dorian kind of set up the reoccurring storyline as it was explained that the reason why the DRNs were decommissioned is a mystery. And Dorian even presents the possibility that the test that proved his synthetic model was flawed might have been fixed. Nico, do you think this has something to do with an evil mastermind wanting to put the MXs in place because they don't have the free will to question their orders? Yes, yes, and yes. You and I have been theorizing that there is a mole in the police department or somehow the syndicate has spies or moles working to give them an edge against the police. One theory we keep coming back to is that somehow the MXs will be compromised and will turn against the cops and allow the syndicate to take over the city or get an advantage against the cops. This series of yours that I'm going to build on would be the perfect addition. I propose that the DRNs were made to look flawed by having the Luger test be fixed or flawed to force the decommissioning of the DRN model so that the new MXs would replace them. If the syndicate was behind the flawed Luger test and knew that the MX would be the next model or somehow made it so that the MX would be the next model, they could have been involved in the design and programming of the MXs. They may yeah. even have installed a Star Wars-like Order 66 that when initiated will turn the MXs against the police force much like the Emperor turned the clones against the Jedi with the Order 66 order. That would be really interesting to see and I think really fun because J.H. Wyman borrowed ideas from all of our favorite sci-fi right. and so going to my initial introduction into sci-fi which was star wars and pulling something like the order 66 out of that and bringing it to this show would be a lot of fun to see yeah i i could see that part of it seems a little too close to irobot I'm hoping that a human is behind this instead of a robot brain. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. why I said it's the syndicate. The syndicate is a human organization. God, the syndicate's got to have people like high up in the government. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Be able to do this. Oh, absolutely. They are, they are embedded in every aspect of society, I bet. Yeah. God, the MX is going to become very freaky, almost like Cybermen on Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. If they do it right. Yeah, absolutely. And the three actors they have that play the MX models, they're, they're actually overlooked at how well they're playing these, you know? Yeah. They they are exactly what you expect from these robots, these, like, non-questioning drones, essentially, as opposed to what Michael Ely's doing with Dorian. So I think that sometimes, since they're not the stars of the show, they might get a little overlooked, but I think they're doing a, a very good job in presenting this model that we are meant to hate. Well, it's like the Observers, yeah. on Fringe, that, that type of actor they got. God, that could have been, they could have some of the Observer characters playing these MXs. You don't know. Right. Okay. Well, the humor that came out of the interaction between Cuttings and the Tudorians also, I thought, made a nice contrast to the serious and quite frightening nature of this week's case, with people being extorted over their biomechanical organs. Did this kind of help you with handle handling the brutality that was featured in this investigation of the way these people were getting killed? No, you know, I've actually seen this idea before in sci-fi stories before, so maybe I was immune or numb to the brutality this week. This idea was most recently done in right. the Jude Law movie Repo Man, and of course, Larry Niven's organ legging theory that is the illicit trade of black market human organs for transplant and the name comes from organ and bootlegging. In that story, the crime developed as a response to the organ bank problem, which Larry Nevin presented as a concept featuring prominently in the his early known space novels, particularly those that were set in the 21st and 22nd century. Anyway, the concept is an examination of the consequences to society of new technology. 
in this case, the perfection of organ transplants, and an existing problem that we have today, which is organ shortage. If you carry those out to their logical conclusion, you get the organ bank problem. And since I've read and seen this before on other shows, I was more interested in how the show was going to handle the outcomes than I was focused on the necessary brutality of the situation. So in a long way to answer your question, Dan, it was not the humor from Michael Ely that helped me handle the brutality, but rather my own fascination in the sci-fi genre and this well-known sci-fi theory and wanting to see how J.H. Wyman would handle it in this episode. P.S. I thought it was very well handled. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And for me, it was emotional for me, the way they handled this. I had seen it before, right. but the concept had always freaked me out. Okay. <laughs> and so that's from my personal experience. This idea of this, like, basically flipping a switch and you're dead right. freaked me out. Like, pulling the plug in the Matrix freaks me out when they did that. Yeah, like, and on, on S.H.I.E.L.D. now with the explosives in the brain. Where right, they exactly. Just flip, a, flip a switch and it, it blows, up, blows up their eye, which ultimately blows up their brain. Which is borrowed from Mission Impossible 3. Exactly. J.J. Abrams concept. <laughs> so there you go. So that idea, that always kind of just makes me shudder a little bit. And really, my heart was racing, no pun intended there, during the middle of this episode, when the coroner was debating turning off all the organs. We had that those ticking clocks in front of him. He's just going to flip the switch, and that's it for everybody. And just the look on that old man's face that was killed was just, it was kind of sad. Oh, yeah. And it freaked me out. And the woman's still in shock that they couldn't even talk to her. Yep. That was another part that was just, uh. And really, to top that off, the agony of the team at the precinct being put in this position where basically doing the right thing cost people their lives. I mean, that really really just hit me back a ton of bricks. Kaniko, was this, I guess, an intense moment of television for you? Or at least got you into the episode? Yeah, Dan, that is what is so great about this sci-fi topic. No matter what the cops do, some people are probably going to die. I like that despite the fact that the funeral director guy was a criminal and was making money off these people who needed transplants to live, he was still struggling with turning off the resets to their time and killing them all. I thought that added to the dimensions of this story and led to an interesting conclusion to the episode. Episode. I really enjoyed the way things ended up and how the company agreed to to free replacements for all those duped into buying these illegal organs. I thought, that, yes, they're just covering their asses so they don't get Correct. sued. But at the same time, I thought it was a good conclusion so that we did sort of get a relief to that tension that was building up that we knew that these cops are just doing their jobs and they want to help people. But by doing the right thing, they're going to kill some people. And I, I thought this was a good resolution to that that maybe gave us a, a happy ending that you wouldn't necessarily get on every show. Right, but J.J. H. Wyman, he's got to have the happy ending, which I love, you know? <laughs> right, right, or at least partially happy, you know? Yeah, it's a skewed version of Disney World. And again, I mean, it helps so much having these freaky parts balanced out with that warm and fuzzy nature of the Doria 2 story. But I'm debating if the writers should have kind of brought that whole thing to rewarding fruition with having Doria 2, you know, kind of save the day in the end, instead of freaking out when Doria kind of offered him the gun to go help him catch the killer. Should we have seen him get one last big hurrah as a cop? Or would that have gone, gone against us sympathizing with the way the Dorians have been oppressed? Yeah, I'm not sure, Dan. I think it showed the level of feelings that the DRNs are capable of having and that even they are not able okay. to just shut off their feelings and turn off the fear of being back in the field and not knowing if he would crack under pressure and, and ultimately not wanting to test if he was not sure. I think that helps us sympathize with the loss of the DRNs from service and their apparent oppression 
impression as you suggested, but I'm just not sure if it was needed or even fit with the rest of the story going on in this episode. I don't know, because I thought they did such a great job with it, so <laughs> I don't know if it fit right. or not, but I was okay with it either way. Well, I think it's to keep it as an ongoing story arc. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if the DRNs unite or if they're going to have a civil rights march or, <laughs> you know, what the deal is to get back in service. But I feel like that's what it is. And I feel like eventually it's going to get to, and I think this is down the road, show, that Dorian's going to be their advocate. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if the show is going to get that political, but it would be a little interesting to see. You know, and, and again, I think that question of what are the DRN's rights is going to come into play. I think there's going to be a crime coming up where it's going to be tested, where he's going to want to investigate or something. God, they're going to tell him no because it's just a synthetic. Who really cares? Because so that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out and where Kenix lies on the whole thing. Yeah, I like that idea, Dan. I do. I think that that's going to show it's going to test the Kenix and Dorian relationship and their partnership. And I think it's going to ultimately solidify them as a team because Kenix will ultimately side with Dorian, I think. And that'll be fun to see. I, I think th- you're you're absolutely right. I think Kenix gets it. He mm-hmm. doesn't admit that he does, but I think he gets it. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think ultimately when once the MXs go bad, which is where we think things are going to go, I think there'll be a move to bring more DRNs back into service Yeah. rather than trying to develop a whole new system as at least a stopgap until they can devise a whole new system uh, and a whole new model of synthetics. And I think there will be a lot of pushback against the DRNs because of their history of being quote-unquote crazy ones. And I think that's going to be an interesting move if they do that in, you know, maybe season three or four. Especially for the Michael Irby character. Having him get uh, his MX replaced with a DRN and how that goes. Right, right. All right, so now just for fun, with it being Christmas, is it fair for me to call Dorian a sci-fi version of Santa Claus? <laughs> because, I mean, the last two episodes have ended with him giving the memorable one-off character just the sentimental gift that we're looking for, with Dorian erasing Dorian 2's police data while allowing him to retain memory from the deepest connection he's had with a human. Nico, are you loving how every episode of the show ends with kind of Dorian bringing this sentimental smile to our faces with kind of this knack for giving that encompasses the holiday season? Yes and no. <laughs> I have liked it the past two weeks, and it has nicely wrapped up the Dorian story arc each week in a very satisfying way. But I feel like this could get very old quickly, very quickly, if each week he is, as you said, acting the Santa Claus. I'm fine with it now during the Christmas season, because it it fits perfectly. But I think it loses its punch when it's every week. Thus, I'm hoping it's used more sparingly once we return from hiatus. But I did like that Dorian allowed the other DRN to retain his memories of the boy he saved, and the connection he made with a human despite having to remove all his other memories and files. I think that was very good and I really like that as a conclusion to that Dorian 2 story arc. I agree, I agree and I like the smile he had on his face when he said you remember Philip that was just a great performance there by uh, Michael Ely. Definitely good stuff. Yeah, as both of the Dorians. Yeah, and, and I liked how he made them both different and, and how he portrayed them as very good stuff. Okay, let Kenix be Santa Claus next week. Yeah, yeah. Mix it up a bit. Let's do it. Alright, so with that, we're going to segue into something that mixed it up a bit. And some people loved it. Others hated it. We'll talk about some of the people that hated it. And others that loved it. I think Nico and I loved it. So we're going to talk now about a very, very different episode of Psych. Called Psych the Musical. Psych you out in the end. 
a deranged playwright who kills critics, escaped from lockup, and Sean and Gus must find him before he murders again. The case, however, takes a musical turn. Okay, just so you guys know, this is not going to be a musical episode of Across the Airwaves. Because if we tried to musical this section, it could probably break glass. <laughs> so don't have to worry about breaking glass. But, uh, it's like the musical, something I was excited to watch. But really, I wasn't thrilled to review this going into it. Because I just don't know how you can really discuss musical numbers. God, there were so many one-liners in this episode. We'd be here all day. Day, trying to cover them all. So I'm just going to throw out some of the big highlights, some things I liked or made me laugh, and we'll discuss from there. Guys, for my list of highlights, I've got Sean's dad wanting nothing to do with the musical part of this episode. Classy, prancing, and dancing around with Sean, because I never thought we'd see it. Chris Lambert, the Highlander, who I swear was a Corey Feldman lookalike. Sean's horrible British accent, which I hope never ends up in a Doctor <laughs> Who episode. Anything to do with Jamaican Inspector Man, the way they portrayed Sean's relationship with Yang, Mary's heavenly cameo got a whole lot more than that. But let's have Nico chime in with his list of favorite comedic moments. It's like calling yourself Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> the entire I heard it both ways line that kept repeating throughout the episode. The use of the actor Anthony Rapp as Z, who was in one of my favorite musicals, Rent. This is my partner, Little Wayne. This is my partner, Gigi Von Tran. Von Tran. I've heard it both ways. Steve Frank sneaking into his own show yes. as an uncredited extra as the very tall chimney sweep, who'd be warming up in the wings when Gus suffered from stage fright. These, th there were too many more to count, but this was just a great episode. So many one-liners, so many things, so many quotes, so many callbacks to the entire series. Ah, oh, I just loved it. Well, the t chimney sweep thing was a joke at Comic-Con that yeah. Steve Frank had brought up. I loved it. But he went for it. I just, oh. Steve Franks had a blast with doing this episode. I'm just glad he even got to slip himself in there. It would have been funny if he had, like, started into the Mary Poppins chimney sweep song and then been like, oh, whoa, wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong number. <laughs> well, did they bust into God, the end of the Beauty, Beauty of the Beast with that musical number at the end? It sounded like it, right? Yeah. I think it was the music of, but, like, changed lyrics. Yeah, because he explains what happened with the case. Yep. But it did, it sounded like when they were raiding the castle. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that a lot of the songs used the music from other musicals, or yeah. at least the main chorus was the same music, and then they built new lyrics onto it. And I think that was like the style they went for for the entire series. I can't be sure because I, I'm not a musical theater expert, but that's what it seemed like to me. Did it Chris Lambert, the, the Highlander? I thought he was Corey Feldman. Yeah, he had a very uh, Corey Feldman look, didn't he? Could Anthony Rapp could pass as the Hodgins' cousin? Yeah. God. You know, when, when he was singing his very first number, when they were showing flashbacks to the initial thing, yeah. I swear that was a rent song just changed lyrics it probably I felt was. like it, it was if it wasn't a sound like rent it was a feels like rent song yes but I don't know Anthony Rapp could pass as TJ Fine from Bones' <laughs> cousin I swear absolutely I thought it was him at first I'm like no 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 that's Anthony Rapp rent. but I was like oh that's kind of interesting too so there are a lot of lookalikes in this episode <laughs> yeah God, get really I think out of all of it, my favorite musical number. And again, this is probably what I was most excited for. With the music was Woody's song, entitled The Opposite of That. Just that sight of Kurt being pulled out on that gurney was hilarious. Oh, I, oh, that was probably my favorite Woody moment. And you know, I always get a laugh out of Woody Nico, but that was Kurt Fuller at his finest right there. Absolutely. After everything I've seen him as, that was the ultimate moment for him. So, oh, great stuff. 
often it's the opposite of what you might assume. Think you're too full for jello? I can prove there's always room. Find your wife hot tubbing with a cabbie from Khartoum. It's the opposite of that. How do you sleep, Matak? It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. Nico, what do you got for a favorite musical number here? Probably my, most of all. I did, but my favorite was the I've Heard It Both Ways song. Yeah. Lassie and Sean's Argentinian Tango was one of the musical's greatest gifts. <laughs> and this tune will be playing in my head the next time Sean utters his favorite catchphrase. I've heard it both ways. The right way and then yours. I've heard it both ways. Let's not open any sores. I've heard it right and wrong. Don't dip my thong anymore. I also really enjoyed the making up a song number as well. That was pretty pretty good as as well. It is probably my second favorite. Although your Woody's one might have been number two, and making up a song might have been number three. When you're making up a song, the words you improvise are never wrong. Just jam as many syllables you can before the break. You literally cannot make a mistake. It's so yeah. hard to tell. They were so good. Now, making up a song, was that the one where it was the security guard playing the piano? The security guard playing the bass? Yeah, the, the bass, upright yeah, bass yeah. and Sean playing the piano. Yeah. Yeah, that that was great. Great stuff. <laughs> I mean, it, it, everything surprised you in this episode. Speaking of the musical numbers, I really thought the timing and placement that Steve Franks, who actually wrote this episode, he wrote all of it, the lyrics and everything. Got to also direct the episode. I, I thought he had the placement for them set up really well in his script, and they were done in a way that kept the story moving and progressing. And I also like they set up reasons for the characters to burst into the song and dance to fit the setting of the theater or get information out of Yang. But, Nico, I have to ask, where is the big finale at the end where the cast takes a bow? I mean, don't all musicals end with the big <laughs> Final number? Yeah, I think so, but uh, I don't know. I, I, th- I thought that the way they, they did this, they kept the pace up, the story moving. I, I almost wish there were more musical numbers because they were so good, but I think that if they had done a last-minute one where the whole cast comes out and bows, it might have might have taken away from how good it all flowed together, and right. you know, it, it definitely wouldn't have worked in the way they, they bookended the episode, which was that like storybook sort of setting. Right. I didn't really care for that, but it wouldn't have worked if they'd done a musical number where everybody comes out and bows. Although, they could have done that as the psych-out at the end rather than Dewey Hill's great solo, that which was hilarious, was, was hilarious as the, the Jamaican Inspector Man. <laughs> but I, I think that if they had done a musical number much like Under the Santa Barbara Skies, if they had done that with everybody coming and it ending in a giant sort of bow, I almost felt like Santa Barbara Skies did that in the very first number rather than at the end like most musicals wrap up okay yeah i like that stuff too god really there was another camp of people that weren't so much into it that was my dad he is much very much like henry so that's kind of why 
I get a kick out of watching the show with him because he is so similar. And he likes the sarcastic humor and stuff for the show the most part. But the musical stuff was too much for him. And Nico, did you have anybody that was in the same boat with that? You know, we didn't really. Everyone I watched the show with actually enjoys the show for the show, you know, and, okay. and, and the humor. So definitely not getting that vibe over here. We were all really excited about the psych musical and really looking forward to this all all fall. And when it finally came, we were all gung-ho about it and absolutely loved every minute of it. My my parents and my sister watched it with me and we had a, a blast watching it. So not really the same, you know, right. motivation, you know, to make fun of or, or watch it as a, a goof on it. So I, I think we had a little bit different experience over here. Okay, yeah, because I mean, I enjoyed it for all and I mean, I've seen the musicals they base stuff on. Yeah. Well, at least most of them. And I think the only one my dad knows because the musical is Fiddler on the Wolf. So, <laughs> right. Okay. That's pretty much it. So okay, I think that's why he was less inclined to watch it. God, the rest of my family loved it. Uh-huh. Like, it was fun, but he was just like, this one's just a little too wacky for me. This because that's okay. I mean, everyone has that problem. There's yeah, you can't. Like, yeah. You can't love every episode of every show you watch. There are going to be ones that just don't speak to you or don't don't do what you expect. And you know, you can still be a fan of watching the show and not love every episode. I, I have right. episodes of every show that we've ever watched where I'm like, nope, Dan, this one did not work for me. <laughs> Great. So those people that are out there, they were like, oh, this piece of this week. We get it. That's cool. Psych will be back to normal when it comes back in January, which is quite soon, which is great. I'm excited about that. But I enjoyed it for the most part. And really with this, my dad and I probably got the biggest laugh that we've ever gotten out of Psych, which was when Gus was tap dancing on stage. And Lassie ran out. And he's like, what's happening? And Jules is like, are you in surprise anymore? Right. That was basically our experience with watching the show. You know, my, my dad is like, that a lot of times. Then I explained the joke and then he laughs and he gets funny. So God, that, I thought that was kind of a clever moment for us to get to go back. He laughed pretty hard there. So yeah. So it did work to some degree. And also, he really did, my dad gave the episode credit for having a strong mystery that would have made a great psych episode really without the music numbers as well. Because the idea of Z being this serial killer, I thought it added a nice dose of intensity to the episode. And Sean having to prove his innocence instead of guilt was a nice twist for the show. Do you agree with this assessment, Nico? Yeah, Dan. I think this is what made the musical episode that much better was that even without the novelty of the musical numbers this still would have been a great psych episode with a great mystery I really enjoyed the actual story as much as I enjoyed the musical numbers. Yeah, I was really amazed at how much this episode pertained to the overarching story. Mm-hmm. I mean, with you had Yang being a central part of the case and the original murder that he was framed for, causing Lassie's divorce. That was an interesting little aspect that added in there. Kind of, I mean, with all this big stuff going on, I mean, they really could have passed this off because of mid-season finale. Oh, yeah. I mean, would you have been accepted, uh, accepted that, Nico? And were you surprised to see another installment of the Yin-Yang story? with this. Yeah, I, I liked how this episode fits so well into the series but at the same time because it was delayed so long that the musical's first number you know that catchy song featuring Sean and Gus and right. dozens of other wacky Santa Barbara residents on the boardwalk it was apparently originally conceived as a way to establish sort of Sykes premise for any uninitiated viewer who was just turning in because it was a musical and it was Sykes musical. It still sort of served that function well but you know as I said because of the scheduling delay the lyrics about Sean's deceived girlfriend were no longer relevant. It was just disappointing that the network scheduling caused this confusion and my disappointment. Otherwise, I was happy with how well this show would have otherwise fit perfectly into the first half of the last season. 
I also enjoyed Yang being part of the story because I did not foresee any way she would could still be part of the story. And this episode proved me wrong because it did it masterfully. You know, I yeah. could have seen this been the, either the penultimate episode of, of last season before the whole Jules thing came out. Yeah. And that would have worked perfectly. I could have also seen it like being the second episode when we returned from hiatus, the summer hiatus. And it kicked, you know, they had the, the, the series, right. uh, the season premiere. Then they had the psych musical and then kicked right back into the story that led to ultimately the tragic learning, Juliet learning about Sean's deception. Well, it did kind of fit season seven because of Yang uh, figuring it out as well. Yeah. Yang figured out he wasn't psychic either. And so that was interesting. Yep. And really, there's part of me because of that, and that being such a big thing, that I don't know if this episode would have been better if Yang turned out to be the killer. I mean, as far as the musical goes, it very much so succeeded. Because despite that one line about John's girlfriend, right, it fit anywhere within the show. I mean, it would have to be post-season five, but it fit right in perfectly, but it's like that line. But I don't know. I mean, would it have been better if we had, like, Yang being the killer and the ultimate final showdown with Sean? You know, I don't think I would have liked Yang being the killer. Okay. I thought the way they handled the Yang and Sean's whole relationship and everything in this episode was perfect and was better than if she were involved in the killings. I liked it better that she was rather involved in trying to help prove that Z was in fact innocent. As for her death, I thought it was handled very well, though. Yes, this prevents her from returning for the series finale or the series final season, but I think that is all right because this episode was a great send-off for really the biggest bad the series had in its run. I thought it was handled just about perfectly, so I was happy the way they wrapped everything up. If she had been the killer, I think it would have been maybe less right. less successful for me. Well, I feel like they've got a bigger story arc planned for the final season. Yeah. With the the way Team Psych was kind of shaked up in the season 7 finale. I think with what's going on in the Anthony Michael Hall character, I think we're going to get that big finale storyline um, where everything's put at risk through all of that. Yeah, and also, real quick, it was nice to see McNabb back. Unfortunately, once yeah. again, another continuity error with the, with the placement and the delay of this episode. But really... It was it was fun to see him and you know Lassie giving him grief for singing. <laughs> Got Chief Vic as well. Yeah, Chief Vic too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I, remember, don't count McNabb out. He may be popping up in other places. Yeah. I want to go with that theory. So with that, I think it's time to move on to actually a surprise new episode called Person of Interest, which I hope you people didn't miss, because I would have missed it if I kind of check my DVR. So let's talk now about the Person of Interest episode, Lave. <laughs> The team faces an unusual task when they must save the life of a new number, who is already dying. Meanwhile, Reese leaves the team, and Finch considers his past. Yeah, with this Person of Interest episode, kind of starting out as what I thought was going to be a standalone, kind of like Christmas bridge between the two halves of the season. I was surprised to see big guest stars like Saul Rubinek, kind of practices Cameron Mannheim, show up in this episode. Nico, were you surprised to see these actors? Yeah, Dan, I was surprised by the level of guest stars in what I thought was going to be a standalone episode that would bridge the first half of the season to the second half, but I did not expect the episode to do what it did and set up yet another adversary to the person of interest team. This was a great move on the show's part because it was wholly unexpected. Also, I think it was great that these two excellent actors were chosen to play these very important roles in the series. Yeah, I mean, this is a surprise here. Mm -hmm. This show's very good at surprises. 
and throwing in something like a new Big Bad in an episode that we thought was kind of going to be pointless or filler was pretty amazing. It caught us off guard. I just hope people didn't miss it to not know that this happened. Because it is, it was in such an obscure place. Especially being so close to Christmas. Got the show being off for, what, three weeks before? Yeah. So, that was kind of weird. So I hope people caught it. You think they did? You know, I think it might have been a, a really poorly done promotion because if I hadn't been checking my schedule, I wouldn't have known it was going to be on either. And luckily, I use a website called Episode Calendars, and it had it on the calendar. So yeah. I was like, oh, we got Person of Interest coming up. And I think I, I mentioned that last week when, yes. after we were off air, and neither of us really knew if it was real. We had to check multiple sources to make sure that this was, in fact, real. Right. And so... So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people actually caught this episode. Well, I don't know if it's just me, but is there something about Saul Rubinek playing an NSA agent named Arthur that makes you believe his version of the machine called Samaritan is hidden in the place called Warehouse 13? <laughs> yeah, I loved that. In fact, I mentioned to my dad that I thought it was funny that Saul Rubinek was playing essentially the same character he was before being selected to be a warehouse agent. I wonder if that was a nod to his other show or purely coincidental. It had to have been a nod, right? Oh, yeah, I would think so. It couldn't just happen <laughs> to be an NSA agent named Arthur. Yeah, someone's a warehouse fan over there. They're like, yeah, we, we want to do an NSA agent. Like, I know, I know the guy. Perfect. Get Saul Rubinek. <laughs> exactly. And he's losing his mind. Cause that was the plot line of the last season of Warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Well, all joking aside. I believe Samaritan is probably going to become like a nemesis to the machine, like the devil to its god, because I think that's how Root's going to see it. And it's going to, basically, it, I think it was intended to be a good thing. That's why this Arthur character built it. But I think it's going to be in the wrong hands. I mean, it's going to fall in the wrong hands. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, Nico, but did I hear it right that Samaritan has an artificial intelligence that will allow this machine to do some of that crazy sci-fi stuff I came up with that you said was too outrageous for Finch's machine? I think Artie, I mean Arthur, said that they theorized that many of those capabilities were possible that and if he could get Samaritan working because remember he said they they, they pulled the plug before he could get it right. operational but yeah I think the Samaritan machine could be all those things and the nemesis to the person of interest team that is if Arthur can get it up and running so yeah I absolutely think this is going to be a an opportunity for another organization to go head to head with the person of interest team not necessarily trying to kill the people that the person of interest team are trying to save that that doesn't make any sense to no. me but i think that they could be attempting to alter some of the intelligence that the, the person of interest team machine is gathering and maybe they're just going to wage war against the team so i do think that yeah samaritan could be that nemesis now do you think it's going to be like the robocop 2.0 to robocop i mean like is it going to be more advanced and be able to do more technologically advanced things see that's a great idea but logically for me, it doesn't make sense because Samaritan's been shelved for the last five right. years, let's say, six years, whatever. Well, it was 2005 when it went operational, when the machine went operational? Was yeah. that? Okay. So that means seven years, eight years now that it's been on the shelf. So it won't have updated with new technologies. It won't have been, you know, so even if it was more advanced at, at launch and had these extra features, the machine has had eight years to adapt itself and make itself more in tune with how the world works. Right. So I think Samaritan will have to 
play catch up at least to get up to the same level that the machine is at. And then once it does that, after a while of going head to head against the machine, then some of the other features it has, like some of the artificial intelligence that were, we were scared about our machine having. Yeah. I love, I'm calling it our machine. Right. <laughs> you know. I think some of those things will make it more advanced and it will be a difference between the person of interest team and the teams that are working with Samaritan on how well they work. And so it, it could, it could be, but I don't think initially it makes sense logically. Okay. Well, I, I like it now that I always kept saying that there was this risk of our machine getting corrupted or, or going all hell on the person of interest team. Have you seen 2001? Yeah. I don't think that's going to be the case now. It's going to be this thing. Yeah. I like that. I like that Finch did a great job of securing the machine and giving it the best chance to stay uncorrupted. And we, we faced the possibility of it becoming corrupted already with the virus that was uploaded. Right and initiating a new admin program. And that's how Root now has full access to it, along with Finch. But I, I don't think we're going to see that sort of thing happen again. And that allows the Samaritan to come in and be right. that sort of storyline that we have to worry about. Plus, it's different, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, and again, this is the government replacing the machine because the machine had left their property or where they was where they were housing it. So they're trying to replace what they lost by choosing the machine that's next to mine. And with that, I thought it was great casting to get Cameron Mannheim, because one of the show's new big bads. First off, she's an Emmy Award-winning actress. And second, it was kind of unexpected uh, for her to be the big bad. I mean, I've watched the show enough to know she wasn't Arthur's wife, but I did not expect her to be the new head, or I guess the ultimate head, of Northern Light, Ken Hirsch's boss. Nico, what's your thoughts on this episode's twist, kind of the new big bad in general? I thought she was perfect for the part. Of course, she's yeah. too big of a star actress to be just a random wife of a character, so we should have expected some twist around her, and that is exactly what we got did i know she was going to be the big bad behind control or northern lights of course not <laughs> but i did know something was up with her yeah i thought they emphasized arthur not knowing her too much for it to be not important right. but i couldn't figure it out exactly and i think that's the magic of this show so in the end i was surprised despite my best efforts to figure out exactly why she was in this episode and they still got me right exactly and they got shot too yeah but again she's probably trained to deal with operatives like that yeah, you know, she, she was, but she was also, I think, put off her, her, off her normal game and didn't pick up on the, the, the telltale signs because she's also trying to be more open to feelings right. and more open to those sort of things. And so like maybe that impacted her ability to do her job in a way that she's going to have to fix or, or find a way to minimize her new emotions from getting in the way. Plus, I think she's a little bit edgy in a hospital because she did somewhat fail as a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't, she, I don't think she likes to fail. Right. Well, it's funny because she really didn't fail as a doctor. Right. She failed as a human being. Right. <laughs> so that made her unable to be a doctor. Yeah, because she, she was technically proficient in everything she does. I yeah. mean, she has, I, I think she has probably something like an iodetic memory or right. something close to it. 
But anyway, so yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. She did have those feelings of, if not real feelings, then at least jitteriness in being back in the hospital. Okay. And really, speaking of big bats, Collier and Vigilance once again reared their ugly head. God, I can't decide if they're out to destroy all of the machine prototypes or if they want to get their hands on Samaritan to cause the game-changing terrorist attack. I've prophesized. Similar to that fire cell that I heard for. What do you think on this, Nico? Is that what they're got to do? Are they helping the government now? What's the situation with them? Yeah, I think it is the Die Hard 4 fire sale scenario. I think they want to get their hands on a version of the machine so they can turn it against the US and cause a data privacy revolution that returns everyone back to essentially prior to the internet security level and gets rid of all these government programs that invade our privacy and spy on everyone all the time. I think they want to use one to destroy all the others. So they can get their hands on the Samaritan and use it the nefarious way too. Yeah, and then once they've initiated this sort of data privacy revolution and maybe even a full-on revolution in the United States and maybe the world, then they'll destroy all the competing machines, they'll use the machine they have, and then once they've achieved their goal, they'll probably destroy their own machine as well. So it's possible the government could need Finch's help. Yeah, I think that that's a possibility, and maybe that is what will keep control from killing Finch, right. you know, because he's, he's captured. I just don't know exactly how it's all going to work out. <laughs> Guan, I feel like there's going to be some of Reese being opposed to working with the government because of his experience with them. That's such a great point, Dan. I, I love when <laughs> you, you come up with these things and it's just like, oh, Dan, I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think Reese is going to be opposed to getting back in bed with the government that he really almost can't trust anymore because right. of the, what the CIA did to him and disillusioned him. But I think Finch and working with Finch and knowing Finch's morality and his right. his ability to you know work with the machine so that they're not doing things that are morally opposed to what John is able to do anymore because he's not the man who can just go and kill he right. he might be on the verge of becoming that with this Carter death but I think Fusco is going to help pull him back from that right and also he may see Fitch in this situation got to be concerned about him yeah gonna have to go back to being who he is to protect him but I could see him you know telling the government or telling this Cameron Mannheim character if you mess with him I'm going to kill you yep that's it you know because I think we could get some good stuff out of him yeah I think you're absolutely right and while the bad guys were making their moves we got some solid flashbacks in this episode to the origins of Fitch wanting to create the machine. But I liked how it came from the noble purpose of wanting to maintain or help take care of his father's memory because he suffered from Alzheimer's. Really, the whole story was quite tragic to watch, but I appreciated how it was similar to a vigilante's story with it being inspired by his father, but yet different because Fitch's original intention behind the machine wasn't the basic save human lives scenario. What do you think of the flashbacks, Nico? I too really enjoyed these flashbacks. I felt like they were a great continuation of the information we've previously learned about Finch and especially about his dad's health issues being one of the things that set him on the path to where he is today. I liked his continued mantra of, if they didn't want you to get in, they should have built it better, which is exactly his philosophy on internet security, hacking, cracking, and the machine itself, and why he prevented it from having any back doors or ways of accessing it from outside so that no one could get inside and mess it up. I think this is really fundamental to who Finch is, and it all comes back to when he was learning about stuff with his dad and his dad said, you're not supposed to do that. And he said, if they didn't want you to get in, they should have built it better. I love that line, by the way. 
Well, it's like he put his dad's morality into the machine. Yep. Because it, it almost as a way of preserving him. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe that's why he has such a distant relationship with it because maybe he sees too much of his father in it and it's it's hurtful. And he doesn't remember it, it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, for being such a stick, this episode has so much to it. Yeah. For being where it was in place in the schedule. It's fascinating. Because I really went into this thinking, oh, nothing that big is going to happen. And there is a lot of stuff here. And speaking of that, Reese's role in this episode was a big part because he ended up at his father's cold watering hole in Colorado to drink his sorrows away. But as expected, Busco showed up to talk some sense into him, trying to save Reese in the same way he saved him. Can I say that I want Busco because my personal motivator? Because he keeps knocking it out of the park with the inspirational speeches. But I don't think the fight he had with Reese was as triumphant as him taking down Simmons. In fact, it was kind of the complete opposite, I guess, with my love for the characters. As we showed just how broken Carter's stuff kind of left our favorite man in the suit. Actually, I was left a little hurt inside to see these guys take swings at each other because I love these characters so much. Was all of this stuff hard for you to watch emotionally as well, Nico? No, Dan, I thought it was exactly what Reese needed. He needed to fight it out and get it out of his system. Lucky for him, Lionel has a hard head and was willing to go toe-to-toe with him to help him get it out. Plus, this was not a fight to the death like it would have or could have been if he were still trying to save people. Rather, it was more controlled and Reese could punch Fusco or get punched by Fusco until one or the other or both couldn't give any more. This is like what I remember a few arguments between brothers and friends were like in high school, where you'd wrestle it out or fight it out and go back to being friends as soon as the fight was over. This is what it felt like to me, and there was not any real animosity in this fight, just getting some stuck emotions out when dealing with the whole Jess death. So that's what I got out of this fight. It wasn't really uh, hate-filled or anything okay. like that. It was like, just kind of get the emotions out, fight it out, and when you're both left just completely emotionally and physically spent at the end of the fight, right. you kind of hug it out and they're like, all right, let's get our life back on track. Let's go fix this. Let's go do something. And I think that's what that was all about. And I think, you know, <laughs> Lionel's going to have to get them both out of this with flashing a badge and just saying, hey, we're just goofing around and it got a little more violent than we would have liked but we're all good he he uh taking out simmons makes me more acceptable of him doing fights now yeah like i don't think i would have bought this scene if i didn't have the episode before because it's like okay he took out simmons who got in a fist fight with reese the same kind of thing and so now fusco i look at him as a different in a different light as a fighter and someone that could take care of himself you know i always picture him as a character that just used a gun but now we're seeing he can be a little bit rougher than that and i like how you mentioned that it's kind of the fight was like brothers yeah i think that's where they're going with the relationship I, I think it's kind of a brothers in arms kind of thing. Now that they've both shared the loss of a really great person that turned them both around. Okay, so yeah, I, absolutely. Because uh, even Fusco mentioned it in this episode that, you know, she, she was his partner too. It yeah. wasn't just Reese's loss and it hurt him because she did absolutely exactly what they said in the last episode was that she saved him. She saved him just as much as Reese saved Fusco. Right. By giving him a second chance, by making him clean again, making him a good cop again, that was just as important as Reese do what he did to make those things happen. And so the loss was equal for him as it was for Reese. I agree with that. Yeah. 
And finally, I don't know why, because the episode had to end with such a hard edge. Cliffhanger of Finshaw got Arthur being apprehended by Northern Lights. I thought the way we left off in November with HR being defeated created a nice calm before the next evil was going to rise. And it was a good way to hold me over during hiatus. But the way this episode ended just made it painful now to wait. Nico is waiting a couple weeks to see the resolution to this cliffhanger killing you right now. Can you think Fitch and Shaw are going to be rescued by Reese and Fusco returning to town? Or is it going to be Root and the Machines? Big moment of proving to Finch something really bad is going to happen. Dan, I actually think it's both of those things. Okay. I think Fusco and Finch will return to find Root locked up in her cage and Finch and Shaw missing. They will attempt to figure it all out without Root, but to no avail, and be forced to have Root and the machine work together with them to find and save Shaw and Finch. That's what I think will happen, and in helping to save Finch and Shaw again, Root will prove her usefulness to everyone, and Finch will finally believe that she can be useful to him and the mission of saving people, especially in taking on another machine in the activation of Samaritan, which is also where I think things are going. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think we need Reese on board with trusting Root. Yep. Because he, he's not really made, been comfortable or have had to make the call to let her out. And I think we need him to accept that for her to be an active part of the team and do what they need to do. So it's kind of, well, I guess we're going to get a reversal of what happened the week before or in the previous episode with preventing Reese from killing Simmons and uh, yeah. the, the, the mayor's assistant guy. Always blank on his name. But anyhow, you, you know my point. Yeah, So I it's do. just going to be a reversal. So with that, I think we're good. Got a person of interest. Now we're going to move on into our sitcom section. We've only got one show this week. And we're going to talk about another CBS favorite. Call I Met Your Mother with the episode that was fun and frustrating for me. Fast Player Wanted. The gang encounters a guy at the wedding who intentionally stirs up trouble among them, and Marshall finally arrives at Farhampton Inn. And with that, we're going to have our own bass player come in to share his thoughts on this episode. And that's Wu, so here's his voicemail on How I Met Your Mother. Alright, the 12th episode of the ninth season called Bass Player Wanted. First of all, I loved Andrew Rattles, the guy that plays Darren. For those of you who may recognize him, he was on the HBO show Girls. He was on the unfortunately short-lived Ryan Murphy sitcom on NBC called The New Normal, where he played Brian. And for you theater, for you theater geeks slash nerds slash musical theater nerds, he was the lead in the great, great musical The Book of Mormon. I thought this character was great on two levels. One, he was great because there's always the one guy at a wedding where no one knows who he is, no one ever met him before, but you know he's related to the wedding somehow. I loved the slow reveal that was given to him just because for the longest time I was trying to wonder, is this character going to be related to Barney? Is this character related to Robin in a way? But no, he he's a part of the, the mother's band. Speaking of the mother, love the interactions between Christian Miliotti and Jason Segel. So we're, so we're three characters down, two to go. Love that, like, like Nico and Dan said, when we first saw the mother in the first episode of the ninth season, she looks like Lily and Robin smushed together, but also she's got a little bit of Marshall's humor. Love the name of her band. Love the, again, the interactions with her and Marshall. Love that she pretty much, you know, get, 
gets along with pretty much everybody in the cast. Loved um, the whole joke with the smartphone and the quote ass player wanted, but but in truth, it's his bass player. Love that joke. That was my favorite joke in the entire episode. Loved how Andrew Rattles played the crapster, or for our geek audience listening, you pretty pretty much play the equivalent of How I Met Your Mother's Dark Side from DC Comics. Loved how he played this kind of manipulator between Lily and Robin. And I, I like that Lily and Robin, no one was really right, no one was really wrong. They brought up valid points. I love that they brought back for Lillian Marshall the whole unpause, pause thing from the season finale of season one. We've not seen that since. And I loved that, that continuity there. Love the, the continuity with the Glenn McKenna. That and the whole, the whole Linus thing, which we'll get to later. The, those are the t two kind of th through lines through the, this entire season, which are very perplexed that they've actually lasted this long. Before I forget, I have to mention Marshall's and the Machine song, the reprise of that song from season six coming back. Loved the um, Linus thing once again because again there's all there's all these musical motifs going on in this season of How I Met Your Mother, like musical motifs of like reprises of things that we've seen in previous seasons or in this season. Loved. Um, the, the mother talking to Linus near the end of the episode. Love how sweet she is. And love how, like, you, she can't confront people, but when it comes to the people that she loves and she cares about, she will confront them because she does care about them. I, I like that, that in this episode, Christian Meliotti's character really sounded like Josh Ratner when he does the classic Ted monologues. Loved the whole interweaving of... Ted punching out Darren, so that leads Darren to leave the band, so so the mother buys Ted inadvertently a drink, loved the, the things with Barney and, Barney and Ted, because, and I love that Barney gets it, I love that, um, that once he realizes why Ted is moving to Chicago, he doesn't fight Ted on it, he understands, there's not a lot of discussion, because he knows if the tables were reversed, in the, let's say an alternate universe, Robin and Ted were getting married. I think if Barney wanted to move to like some city like Seattle per se, he wouldn't. Ted wouldn't fight him on it because he realizes how difficult that would be for Barney. Um, what else? What else? There's a lot in this episode. Sorry guys, if I'm going a little long here. Overall, I have to say I love this episode. Again. I reiterate this every, every, every week, but I'll reiterate it here. Once the DVD comes out, or once this is available on Amazon, or iTunes, or Netflix Instant Watch, I think the season will be better digested in, in the way it is now. I think if we watch this, this whole season in one sitting, it will make a lot more sense rather than watching it week by week. I think that's where all, a lot of the criticisms come from. And one thing before I go, because I, I almost forgot about this and I have to mention it, the slap bed. We're probably going to see the last two slaps because we're winding down to the end of the season. I know it sucks, but a great way, a great cliffhanger to lead the audience on until we get back from Christmas break. Um, 
I probably won't be back next week because there's an episode next week. Let's end it back to Nico and Dan. But before I do, I want to say happy holidays to all our listeners. And let's get back to Nico and Dan. Bye, guys. All right. Thanks, Wu, for the voicemail. And I'm going to follow that up by saying this episode for me was like that Family Guy joke where Peter has his own orbit that surrounds him. And he proceeds to have a TV float around him going, ah, and you can see it floating in front of him. Okay, going, ah, when it goes behind his back. Because I was happy when the episode was referencing back to Marshall versus the machine. Got having him meet the mother. But I got really pissed off when that devil of a bass player was on screen because I love the friendship that the characters have on this show. Okay, there was no way in hell I could stand this idiot messing all that up. Again, I understand this is the reaction the writers wanted us to have towards the character, but I still wanted someone just to punch this guy in the face. But I was impressed that Ted was the guy who came through in the clutch, because I thought he was more of a kicker. But I will accept Ted breaking form in this case, because it paid off into another satisfying moment that shows why fate has left it for Ted to be with the mother. So now I'm going to kick things on over to Nico with his thoughts on how I met your mother. You know, this week's episode probably arguably did more to progress the story than any other episode this season looking back. I also liked that for the first time, the mother was front and center rather than just popping up for another cameo, which has been her role all season so far. Even better was that this episode started with Marshall meeting the mother, who happened to be driving by and picking him up. Even better was that right off the bat, the two established a great rapport, as the mother tricked Marshall into thinking she had some kind of psychic powers. Just messing with you. I rode the train with your wife. She told me all about you. You must be Marshall. It was good to see that Ted Ted's best friend had no trouble getting along with Ted's future wife, and their chemistry together was solid, particularly in that final car scene. Also, skunk junk, kind of funny, kind of crude, not sure where I stand on it. (laughs) I was not a big fan of Andrew Randall's fire starter or friendship wrecking attempts in this episode either, Dan, as I know we were not meant to be, as you said, but still, it felt almost forced in a way. To be honest, Darren wasn't much of a believable character. It was sort of a manufactured plot device. But in the end, with Mosby decking him, causing him to quit the band, and leading to the mother buying Ted his first drink, it all worked out perfectly in the end. So I was happy with that. Overall, I'm just glad everyone's now in the same place. Looking back, it was borderline outrageous just how many episodes it took for both Marshall and the mother to finally get to Farhampton. I mean, come on, it was half a season. Yeah. Hopefully, now that the gang's all here, we can expect a more eventful back half of the season. That, at least, is what I'm looking forward to in the final push of this series. Well, it's got to start picking up now. Yeah, it has to. I mean, it's going to be good. We got Marshall there. The gang's united. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look out for more How I Met Your Mother in January. All right. With that, I think it's about time we jump into the Airwaves Rundown. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. ENT. We know drama. And for the final time this year, we will kick it off with Homeland as we discuss the season three finale, The Star. Lockhart steps in as the new CIA director, endangering Saul's plan to extract safely Carrie Gunbrody from Iran. This third season finale episode was pretty good. 
Now, it doesn't totally make up for the Season 3's earlier problems, but this episode was probably about as strong of a finale the show could have delivered this season. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. There was a lot of baggage hanging over this season, and as I said last week, that I figured that Brody had to go. This episode is a prime example of how you move on and still manage to give the departing character a few final powerful moments. Indeed, after all the complaining and second-guessing that Homeland has had to endure from critics and fans this and most of last season, in the end, the show's creators finally had the guts to do what needed to be done with Brody. They killed him. Clearly and unambiguously, Brody's dead. But this was the ending Brody needed. Any flights of fancy of him becoming a super spy alongside Carrie and Saul or somehow doing a Mr. Mom while Carrie fought terrorists would have damned Homeland. A happy ending just wasn't in the cards for him. That's not what Homeland is about. This season in particular has shown us what the spy life can do to its best and brightest, how it takes and takes and takes and then discards you once you've completed your mission. Brody is the ultimate example of this. And in fact, even Saul, having achieved the unachievable with his huge win on the Javadi front, was still kicked out of the agency for his trouble. He seemingly got off easy compared to many of his peers, however. The strongest thing about this episode, The Star, other than the acting, which we'll get to in a minute, was how well it not only tied some of the primary stories together, but sort of emphasized that this was the only way everything could have played out, and even if Carrie and Saul wanted different outcomes, they ultimately completed their mission. It's hard to see it that way since Brody ended up hanged for murdering Akbari, and Saul ended up being fired by Lockhart, who took over about a half dozen hours earlier than he was supposed to to make sure that Javadi's cover stayed true in Iran. But everything Saul and Carrie set into motion way back in the season premiere, from Carrie checking into the clinic to Saul trusting Javadi to stick to his word once he flipped against Iran, came to fruition here, and then some. Javadi had to take Brody out to keep his chances of real power in Iran alive, and even though Saul didn't want to do it because of various reasons, you know, loyalty to Carrie, his old school mentality, it was probably the right play if we're thinking about it on an international scale. Also, just for old times' sakes, I appreciate that the show gave us one last unbelievable Nicholas Brody murder escape plan. I mean, seriously, Brody drags the body into the back room, wipes up the blood, and sets the pillow back down on the couch, reverse side up like he's some 11-year-old that just spilled Mountain Dew Code Red while playing video games. And then he just walks out of the building because Akbari's assistant is on a smoke break or something. That's amazing! And that is the kind of scenes that we loved from the first and second season of Homeland. Now, what ultimately made this finale episode so good was the acting. It was perhaps one of the saddest hours of TV we've seen in some time, and it was also a reminder that for all the Carrie fatigue that's been going around this season and from many critics and fans alike, Claire Danes remains an amazing performer. Ultimately, her and Brody's story was truly tragic, and even with Brody gone, Carrie is continuously reminded of his presence by the baby inside her. In fact, it amazes me how this one episode turned that entire pregnancy subplot around so that it's suddenly a very compelling and painful part of the character. The easy route would have been to go with the this baby is part of Brody thread. But no, Carrie wants nothing to do with the thing. Damien Lewis is less flashy than Dane's in his final appearance as Brody, but he's perfect in his world-weary, resigned approach to where his life has taken him. Any ideas of getting out of Iran for the sake of his daughter are gone now. Brody's family isn't even mentioned, in fact. His remarking that at least his dad isn't around anymore to see any of this is, is a heartbreaking moment, as are the final seconds of his phone call with Carrie where she begs him to stay on for a few more seconds of just silence. 
the episode certainly leaves a lot open for where things will go next season. It pretty much leaves everything open, in fact. And yes, this episode had some illogical plotting as well as a clunky wrap-up, but that doesn't really matter. Because when Carrie quietly put that star for Brody on the wall, a star that no one will recognize except her and maybe a few other people, we couldn't ask for a better memorial to the character. Brody may have outlived his usefulness on the show as well as in the show's reality, but damn if he wasn't a great television character. I'm interested to see what this show will be like without Damian Lewis and Brody, but if I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure whether the show can keep me as a viewer now that the primary story arc has been resolved. I guess we'll see next year when Season 4 returns. Alright. And now we're going to talk about a show that aired on TNT. It was six episodes. They aired it three weeks in a row as basically three two-hour blocks. Because that's TNT's Mob City. Because Nico had been covering it in the rundown section weekly while I tried to catch up. Because that two-hour of television was a lot. But for everything else I have to do around here. Which I enjoy doing, which is a lot of work. So I finally got caught up on Mob City on one evening. And I'm going to talk with Nico about my experiences watching this series as a whole. So here it is, our thoughts on season one of Frank Terrabond and TNT's Mob City. It's the day that we say hello again Mob City tells the true story of the epic conflict between the LAPD and gang leader Mickey Cohen. Set primarily in the 1940s and 50s, Mob City is filled with high glamour and low-life thugs. But I gotta say, the production value of this show is just absolutely brilliant. Everything about it felt like we were in the 1940s. The cars, locations, costumes, dialogue. We even got live jazz performances. I mean, this is great stuff. I mean, this something, if you want to see something that brought the 1940s to life, this show, oh my gosh, unbelievable. Because they even, though it took place in a realistic fictional world, they even had nods to pulp magazines and comics that came out during the 40s. With the three gangsters who are the main villains being Violin played hitman. I mean, that's just classic. Musicians pulling Tommy guns out of their violin cases to blow people away. I mean, classic, classic. The War, Pulp Magazine, you name it, they hit it right on the spot. And you can tell Frank Darabont is a huge fan of the genre with everything he did here. And I also love how vast the production designer made this world look with the establishing shots of L.A. in the 20s and 40s, as well as Las Vegas before the famous strip was built. Nico, were you impressed with the look of this show? Yeah, Dan. As I described it in my first two reviews, I described it as this. 1940s Los Angeles, a time soaked in booze and doused in dames. A time when you couldn't readily tell the good guys from the bad guys, the cops from the crooks. This series had a nice mini-movie feel I to like it. I like that too, yep. You know? In fact, there's a whole definitive cinematic element to the show in general. I particularly enjoyed the line Hecky had in the first episode about L.A. being a great city that glitters from afar, but up close, it's all gutter. And having lived in L.A. for a couple years now, I can agree. <laughs> Nice. Even still, that is exactly how the series was framed in 1947 L.A., and I loved it. Frank Darabont hit all the noir classics, both visually and thematically, and everything looked and felt like classic noir or detective novels. And that is why this thematically and visually was just amazing. This show was great in that respect, just absolutely hit it every step of the way. Yeah, it didn't even seem like it was shot on a film stage or anything like that. No, it felt genuine, like, what single camera out in the world. I agree. I was very impressed, too. I really, I mean, with all that speed said, another great move for the show was to have it follow a main character like Detective Joe Teague 
who isn't a complete straight arrow, because it really makes things more compelling when a character is caught between two sides of a war, instead of being completely loyal to one side or another. And really, if you think about it, Teague killing the comedian was wrong from the law's perspective, but his motive behind it of protecting the woman he loves really kept us rooting for him. And at the same time, one could argue that the comedian wasn't really all that squeaky clean himself, since he only wanted to give up the pictures, kind of greed and revenge, leaving Joe's ex-wife Jasmine hanging out the dry. Nico, did you like the story set up for this character? Could just how it fit the time period? Yeah, absolutely. I like that Joe Teague finds himself pulled between both sides of the law throughout the series. As the series progresses, we learn that his sole motivation is to keep his ex-wife Jasmine Fontaine. God, I love that name. That's so great. Yes. It, it was to keep her safe. And for that reason, we can root for him despite the terrible things he does on both sides of the law. It was all done to protect her. Short term, long term. And Teague saw Hecky and saw Hecky's plan and knew the end result would be Jasmine in the grave. We know that he's an honest cop, just not when it endangers his dame. We can sympathize with that and root for him all the while hoping he can solve and resolve things and save her without losing himself in the process. In the end, we still don't know if that is possible, but we do know that he'll stop at nothing, not even murder, to keep her safe. Yeah, and I, I get why you would protect her. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful girl. Yes. Great casting of this actress, by the way. Yeah, she hit all the all the things, all the points that you want in that sort of detective noir, damsel in distress, but still, like, I, I don't know how to describe her, but she like the spunk on the money. Yeah, exactly. She was, you know, like I think they they mentioned in the first first episode on IGN, they said like something like the the dames have twiddle cigarettes in their fingers while shooting daggers from their eyes, you know, something yeah. like that. And and that's exactly what she encompassed. She was this hard noir girl, but beautiful uh, all the same. And yeah, it, she's just perfect for the for the genre. Yes. And it's also very creative how Frank Darabont told this story in a way where the reasoning behind a character's actions were left in mystery to entice us to keep watching. For instance, we didn't fully understand why Joe Teague killed the comedian in cold blood until afterwards. Or that Teague and Jasmine were married until really the third episode. And it's still kind of unanswered as to what Milo Bentignoria's character Ned Stack's angle is in this war between the cops and the bot. Now, Nico, do you think this worked as an effective storytelling device for this show? Absolutely, Dan. This use of mystery for the motivations behind the characters kept the story moving and the audience invested in the overall mysteries of the season. We didn't learn the truth about Jasmine and Teague until the end of the second episode and didn't know all the players or their motivations until the final minutes of the season. Right. As for Ned Stack's motivation, he wanted to help Teague save Jasmine and clean up the mess his boss Siegel got himself into by getting rid of Hecky Nash and the evidence. Ned has loyalty to Siegel's operation, but he's also loyal to Teague for saving his life a total of three times in the war. Thus, much like Teague, Ned Stacks is a go-between character who has to sort of finagle that line between both sides of the law. And it also seems like he's trying to keep the peace. Oh, absolutely. That is his job. He is the fixer. He gets rid of problems. But he also is the face of the organization. He's the one that deals with the cops. He's the one that goes in and acts as the lawyer. And he keeps keeps the bad stuff from sticking to the organization. And part of that bad stuff is 
beefs with other gangs or with the other organized crime. So, yeah, he's definitely a peace broker. Well, and, and that and that's what it seems like. He, he goes, yeah, I get my hands dirty, but it's better than everyone running around the street, streets shooting each other. Yep. Except now his job's a lot more difficult <laughs> as this wraps up. Yeah, absolutely. So he's not too happy with Joe right now. No, no, not not in the least bit. No, and at the same time, Mob City really had some great supporting characters. Uh, my favorites were Neil McDonough as police officer Boy Scout Bill and Robert Nepper as the hitman Sid Rothman because he got to play a villain that was worthy of his talents called like yeah. that waste of a one-off character he played on the blacklist. This was great stuff and really I'm glad he got on a show that wasn't questionable. Right. Like this is a high quality show. I mean he was on Heroes and he's very good at Heroes but that show was kind of on the way out when he got on there and then of course he's been on all these NBC shows grasping for power. And so I'm glad he got kind of out from underneath that. I know he's going to do it again by showing up on Arrow. But going back to the show, who were some of your favorite sporting characters on the show, Nico? Since you could add so many familiar faces to television people liked. Yeah, really. When you looked at this episode, virtually every actor in it was like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, I yeah. know that one. <laughs> but I'd have to say that by far, Sid Rothman, as you said, played so well by Robert Nepper, was the best character of the series. I think, hands down, the best character of the series. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to see he made it through season one and should return for season two. His Sid character was not only the most badass character, but besides Teague himself, the most well-developed and fleshed out of the characters in the entire series. Milo Ventimiglia's character, Ned Stax, was also a favorite of mine, playing somewhat of a slick slime ball. It seems like a fun, off-type character for him, and I greatly enjoyed him in this role, and I'm glad that he also made it through season one, because I think he's going to be good again in season two. Well, I think it gives him more versatility yep. as an actor, and people are seeing that. Because I thought he was very talented from what I saw of him on Heroes. I know he's supposed to be a straight arrow character, but then that character turned out to be a mess. Yeah. But he's a good actor. Cause I actually saw him voice that as Wolverine, got a Wolverine anime, but he was quite yeah. good in there too. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, he absolutely loved that ca- character. And wasn't it his brother from Heroes was playing Tony Stark, uh, Iron Man? Yeah, exactly. Got he st- and, uh, he still plays the role on Avengers Assemble. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. And I really, the first place I ever saw Milo Ventimiglia was Gilmore Girls. And <laughs> I know, I, I watched Gilmore Girls. But he was excellent in that as well as a love interest to Alexis Blydell's character. Yeah. Unlike Jared Paladecki. <laughs> I did not like Jared Paladecki. I love him in Supernatural. Hated him in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. I know my stock with some of you listeners probably just went down because I admitted <laughs> I loved Gilmore Girls, but deal with it. It was a great, well-written show. <laughs> yeah, actually, people in the TV industry really respect that show. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I have to say Robert Decker probably took the cake, and I think he pretty much did that by performing just about every classic mafia hit in the book, with some help from a few others. Basically, we got the classic church confessional hit, the gun down in the Italian restaurant, the guy buried under concrete, got a whole new painful twist, got the banana and the tailpipe choke from Beverly Hills Cop. Joe Teague, the cop, even got into the violence because he took a sawed-off shotgun merry-go-round ride and took down a big fish for the mafia to wrap up the season with quite a few gunshots to the chest, head, and other extremities. However, I felt that these moments we've seen before in other gangster films were much more brutal and raw than we've seen in the past through Darabont adding to these sequences the blood spatter and technotography techniques that made The Walking Dead got its violence famous. So, Nico, what do you think about this stylistic 
film were being applied to the gangster noir genre. Dan, you're absolutely right. The use of these techniques gave this show, I almost called it a film, its own brutal feel that felt much more like The Walking Dead noir than a classic detective novel film. I loved it. I thought it gave it more modern feel while still being true to the noir genre and form. Really excellent choices on Darabont's part. It was so good. And real quick thing about Siegel's assassination at the end, I read a thing that said that the nine shots to the body and the one to the eye were actually historically accurate for how he died. Wow. Yeah, so like, the fact that he was shot in the eye, two other times in the head, and six times in the chest is accurate to the actual hit that went out on him. Wow. Yeah. Now, in real life, it's believed he was whacked by his own crew. Okay. And that he was home alone at the time. But I think the show did a great job of playing on those theories and making it their own. So they, they've taken basically real historical figures and placed them within the story of this show. Yeah, Mickey Cohn is a real character. Bugsy Siegel was a real character. Yeah. I think Sid Rothman was a real character. Don't know about Teague. I think he's made up for the, the benefit of the story. So. But Bill Parker or William Parker is a real character. He, LAPD headquarters is actually named after him. Wow. So William Parker something building. Okay. Yeah, so there a lot of these characters are real characters. And I think even Dana Gould's character, forget his the character's name, but the guy who's going to head the IAB yeah. is is a real character as well. Probably because I think that's how I think that's how the real internal affairs as we know it today got started. I, it might might be. I don't know if it was actually in New York or if it was here in LA that it, it was started, but at least at this scale as as Parker's character said Right. Or McDonough's character, Parker, said in the in the episode. Yeah, McDonough was great on the show, by the way. I've liked him in a lot of stuff, and he was great on the show. Oh, I've loved him in, in a ton of things. You know, all the way back to at least starting with a Band of Brothers yeah. and moving on from there. I think he's been excellent in just about everything I've ever seen him in. All right, so now what we're going to do is we're just going to, for time purposes and stuff, I'm just going to rapid-fire off some questions. Nico, you're going to throw at me your answers to some of them. Sure. So after everything that went out, the end of the sixth episode run, I've got a few questions for you to answer, Nico. Kind of, first off, what do you think about the detective who planted the bug in Mickey Cohn's office, sympathizing with T? Were you surprised to see this happen, or it was something you saw coming? No, I was surprised. I'm not sure what to make of this or what to expect going forward, since T didn't exactly come clean about all the evidence and Jasmine being his ex-wife. Will that make this officer an enemy going forward or will he realize that Teague whacked Siegel in the end? I just don't know. I I think I should have seen something like this coming because he did hear uh, Jasmine and Stax in the office and kind of just filed it away in his head and said that he he heard the game going on. So we should have maybe known he knew something was up, but I didn't catch that. Right. And this guy may be suspicious of Teague very quickly. Yeah. And Teague may end up having to be forced to kill him. Yeah, I don't know if he'll do that. I I, I don't know that just because right. he's a good cop and Teague won't doesn't like right. the idea of people killing cops. I, th- I think there's going to be collateral damage that he did not want to have coming down the pipe at some point. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
All right. The next question was, Jasmine getting ticked off at Teague for killing the comedian, come leaving on a train, the way you saw things ending for them in the finale? What do you see happening next in their story? Or were you disappointed she wasn't more of a part of the finale episode? You know, I was disappointed that she was not featured more in the final episode, but that was the way it needed to go down, I think. So I was equally all right with it as well. I assumed that Teague and Fontaine would not have a happily ever after, as that is not how most detective novels or noir films end. But I can't say that I saw her jumping on a train out of town either. I'm just glad she survived the season, but will she be around in season two or does she need to stay lost? I just don't know. I want her back. Oh, she's such a great character yeah. that we absolutely want her back. Is she going to be off and we'll have a side story that focuses on her and her eventual coming back to L.A.? Hopefully. Hopefully something like that happens because I think she's too great of a character to just abandon to the first season. I'll allow it. I'll... <laughs> yeah. Come on. Okay, why do you think Teague went against taking the easy way out of just handing over the pictures to the police? Do you think this decision to ultimately kill Bugsy Siegel derived out of his post-traumatic stress from the war? God, is it fair to say he's a character who has a thirst for violence that has basically signed his death warrant at, at the end of this season by killing such a high-profile gangster? Well, once Siegel took the camera negatives and pictures off of Teague when beating him up at the Biltmore, Teague had no more leverage other than to become a soldier once more. And so he perched at the edge of Siegel's estate and blasted away. I don't think this was post-traumatic stress taking over. Rather, I'd say it was a well-reasoned out and thought-out response as Teague's only option he thought he had left. He had to hit Siegel or Siegel's men would find and kill Jasmine. He couldn't just turn over the evidence because he no longer had it. Now, could he have done it beforehand, the incident, before the incident at the hotel? He could have, but he couldn't have kept Jasmine safe doing that. Okay. He figured if he made the deal with Siegel, he could keep her safe. But the timing was bad, and Siegel beat him and took the stuff. His yeah. only response to that, his only option was to kill Siegel. And he did it like a soldier with a, a amazing 11 shots from across, you know, a couple right. hundred yards. All right. Now, I'm not sure if Teague signed his own death warrant with his hit on Siegel. I assume that's probably the way it's going to go. It certainly seems that way at this point, as Mickey Cohn has been put in charge of finding out who and why someone killed Siegel, Siegel and we have to assume that eventually he will somehow find out it was Teague. Right, I agree. God, and that's going to be exciting when that happens. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. Very intense season two here, folks. God, I think we're going to be seeing a gang war very soon. And in wrapping up the discussion, I thought the structure of the finale episode was kind of weird. As I felt that, guys, time that I felt should have been building up to an ending was spent away from Joti's storyline, setting up bigger things like Boy Scout Bill establishing the first Eternal Affairs Division, got the Flamingo being built in Vegas. I guess that means these six episodes were more intended to be a prelude to the bigger gang war Teague set up by Kelly Bugsy Siegel. Nico, is this how you looked at this first season of Mob City? Did it entice you enough to come back? Yeah, I actually really liked the structure of this season finale because it wrapped up the first case that was season one very well and satisfyingly and it also set up the next case or next season for when we return. I'm absolutely coming back for season two and I can only hope that Teague, Stax, and Rothman are all featured prominently because they are what kept me invested in this season. Right. But at the same time, I'm really digging the setup about the gang war that's coming. The internal affairs department being set up and tying up some of the still unsolved mysteries that this show thrives upon. I can't wait until next year when this show comes back. I think it will be even stronger in season two and I'm just super excited because 
I was a little bit frustrated in the third and fourth episode that it didn't really feel like a good middle, but the right. the premiere, the finale, so good that I just know season two is going to be on that level. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I thought the finale was a very good episode. The premiere was very good. I was a little nervous in the finale because I was like, if they're building up bigger stuff, I think we need to wrap up a little bit more. God, then the t- last 10 minutes did its job. Yeah. So I was happy with that. I was satisfied. I really want to see this be something like how they do Sherlock where it's a three-part thing every year. Yep. Because I really think that'll maintain the mini-movie aspect. Yes. And really increase hype for the show to return. God, I hope the ratings were good on this. I'm not sure how they turned out, but... God, you know, I, really I, didn't see any, I didn't see any talk about the ratings. I think they were probably just pretty solid, not stupendous, where it broke records, but not so low that it was like, what is going on? I think they were probably pretty good, pretty strong, but that's just supposition on my part. Well, I hope word gets out more so about this. Yeah. If you hadn't checked it out, because it's really cool, and I hope that'll get big hype for the show to come back next year. Yeah, I hope they do another rebroadcast, like maybe sometime in the spring, where they can right. show all six episodes in succession, or maybe Kinda, do a three-night thing sort of thing. I think it would be a good idea to maybe show this when they air Falling Skies. Oh, that would be good. Like, put this first, and then this afterwards, or yeah. you know, the other way around. Yep. That I think that would entice audiences. Yeah, I, I really hope it did well because this was a lot of fun to watch, and oh, yeah. I think it's going to be a good good series to to go. And I think if they do what you just suggested and keep it the Sherlock method, where they do three six episodes again in three night blocks, that'll be very successful and keep it in that cinematic feel exactly all the things you mentioned. Because I I think you're absolutely right. That's the way they need to do it, and that's what made this so great the first season. Can just give Frank there on the show. Because <laughs> that was unfortunate we have Walking Dead. Yeah. And I hope that gets worked out too. But with that, you ready for the voicemail section? Yeah, let's move on to the voicemail section this week. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about Once Upon a Time. Alright, I just came back from watching the most recent episode of Once Upon a Time on Hulu. Just general thoughts. Robbie K did the best performance of his time on Once Upon a Time. I loved his scene with gold in the shop. I don't know who gets the Golden Globe Award for Best Acting in this week's episode of Once Upon a Time. Jennifer Morrison, Lana Pirelli, Robert Carlyle, or Robbie K. Loved Robert Carlyle's performance overall. If this is the end for Rumpelstiltskin, I have to say, he did not go out like a punk. He went out like a champ. The character came full circle. Loved the flashbacks to the for what we didn't see in the pilot, loved Leroy pretty much saying the exact same thing he said in the pilot when it came to the curse. I I don't I don't know what to say really because this episode was so good on so many different levels. Loved loved everyone's performance. The only thing I really didn't like about the episode was how the blue fairy returned. After the way they portrayed her, like, going out, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of miffed that they just 
they just reanimated her like after such a dramatic death. But anyway, um, one of the things that I one of the things that I will say about this episode going forward, I loved that it went a year in advance just because. Actually, I talked to Annie Babacht about this off microphone. One of the reasons I think they only did they went a year in the future is one, of course, explain why Snow's pregnant in the in the Enchanted Forest. Two, to explain how Henry looks like he's older. And three, just to have an excuse to have more flashbacks. I think that's absolutely hilarious. Um, the, the One of the reasons why they said this 365 days in the future was to explain, was to have more flashbacks. I love that because it's so absurd. I get this episode a 5 out of 5, but I'll let Dan and Andy talk about it more. They probably covered the th things that I talked about. Let's take it back to Andy and Dan. Okay, guys. Bye. Thanks, Wu, for your great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners next week, so we'll have even more comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. And with that, it's time to move into that part of the episode where everyone gets a little sad because we're going to wrap things up with our closing. So, Nika, you want to share with everybody kind of what's coming up next? Kind of across the airways, there's going to be a little bit of a lull in the schedule yeah. into the holidays. But tell everyone what we got going on. Yeah, next week's episode, we will be covering the 2013 Doctor Who Christmas special. Right. And that's about it for next time. Yeah. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on the website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, just so everyone knows, that episode may be a little bit delayed due to family plans we have over the holidays. It is Christmas, after all. Yes, it is. <laughs> and until our next episode, though, you could check out our various spinoff podcasts we have. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is basically Michael and Wu picking a topic out of the inter from the in from the entertainment industry. Kind of discussing it. And I think they've got another episode coming out soon with Arrow being on hiatus, but I'm not sure. But we've also got Across the Airways DC Nation podcast, which is dedicated to discussing all of the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans. Kind of basically, right now on that podcast, we are covering the Forever Evil story arc going on in DC Comics, as well as the Batman Zero Year arc. So we're going to be picking up with a new DC Nation episode soon because those series have once again picked up again. But also, we will be discussing the small story arc alien on that as well. Also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is briefly on hiatus right now. And that podcast is hosted by our very own Andy Babacht. And Andy uses the Helicarrier podcast to discuss episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in greater detail. But since that show is on hiatus until January, Andy's show is on hiatus. But you can check out our backlog of episodes. And also, we have ATA Longwell Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which covers episodes of the Sith CW series Arrow in greater detail, but also with Arrow being on hiatus. They're not having podcasts come out of that show right now either. But when Arrow's back, new episodes of Longbow Hunters will return. Also, you can contact us by visiting our new and improved ATA website. We have set up a new layout for our website that's a little bit easier on your browsers and we're hoping will load faster. It also, will also be more accessible in a mobile capacity. 
So you can check out our site there. If it's not changed too much that you won't know how to get around. But hopefully it'll be easier on your computers. Again, by visiting our website, you can contact us by email at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook to stay updated on our podcast episode releases. You can follow all the news Nico provides us with every week. And you can get that same content by following us on Twitter or joining our circle on Google+. And also, if you'd like, you can leave a voicemail come to share your thoughts on our podcast episodes like Wu does on Once Upon a Time. Okay, what number can you call to leave us a voicemail, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, we've also got a YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show, Across the Airwaves, and movie events. And so we've got movie previews for all the big movies coming out, such as RoboCop, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. Got a whole lot more. So if you want trailers for upcoming movies, check out our YouTube channel. Also, if you don't want to go back through our podcast for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our podcast box app, which will let you listen to our podcast and stay in touch with our podcast on your iPad or iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace. Also, just so you guys know, our website is an affiliate to the iTunes store. So if you click the download on iTunes button on any of our website pages, you click that, it'll load up our ATA site in the iTunes store. Got anything that you buy from the iTunes store, after clicking that button, got letting iTunes load up, will go towards across the airwaves, got pay for our website and more. So if you want to support ATA, click one of those buttons, make a purchase on iTunes, and the part of the money will go to ATA. So with that, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, got Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt, and I'm Nico Rustek. And until our next fantastic episode, we will catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and have a Merry Christmas. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. La 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. La 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 la. Don we now our gay apparel. La 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 la. Troll the ancient Yuletide carol. La 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 la. See the blazing Yule before us. La 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 la. Strike the harp and join the chorus. La 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 la. Follow me in merry measure. La 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 la. While I tell of Yuletide treasure. La 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 la. Jester lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.